Welcome to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. This podcast is by the ABA section of Dispute Resolution to increase the avenues where we can connect. I'm Larry Schooler, one of six hosts serving as interlocutor, engaging in conversations with members of the dispute resolution community about topics of interest in the field. This week, I'm sitting with Dr. Suksimaran Singh of Pepperdine University. We're discussing how culture can influence a person's memory of a conflict and how that can influence how the conflict gets resolved. It's based in part on a talk Dr. Singh gave at the ABA Dispute Resolution Section Conference last spring. Next Level Mediation Software is a mediator's best tool for advancing their online dispute resolution practice. It takes into account the psychological attitudes of the disputing parties and helps mediators find the key priorities to negotiate. Based on decision science and an easy-to-use interface, the Next Level Mediation Platform can handle the most complex disputes. Register today at nextlevelmediation.com for your complimentary 30-day trial of the subscription service and enter the code ABA discount 20 for a 20% discount. I want to start by giving listeners a sense of the journey that you have taken to the place that you have reached professionally. Um, What did you think it was that originally attracted you to uh, the practice of dispute resolution, the study of it, the teaching of it? What what drew you in? Great question. I think um, I'll give you an honest reply and a little long-winded philosophical reply. Let's get honest reply. Uh, My best professor in the law school was ADR professor who taught one class and I was hooked. I was hooked onto that. I'm like, this is... That was my last year in the law school. And I was, man, this is beautiful, peaceful, creative thinking. And and that's what brought me to it. A longer answer is, I think my faith plays a role because Sikhism is about reconciliation, forgiveness, understanding, compassion. And I believe my upbringing in India with my father played a role. My father was a mediator, which we call a village elder. He didn't charge money for mediations, but he resolved cases for people. People will come to our house. And I always have a memory of him sitting and listening and helping them resolve conflict. So it kind of played a role there as well. My parents, my grandparents, my grandfather um, died fighting for India through nonviolent means. He was the same um, uh, it belonged to the same party as Mahatma Gandhi. So so all of those combined, I believe, played a role in me coming to the field. It's interesting to hear you talk about your dad's work in this space. And I guess I wonder, as someone who has now been fortunate enough to make a living in it, you know, how do you parse the difference between where it's appropriate to do this for a living and where it should be <laughs> the work of every human being? Oh, love that question. Love that question. It's been pondering. So you see in some societies, in India, let's say, a civilization with a capital C, we use the word Maya. I know it's an international word now. Maya, in fact, means affection to all things material, right? Uh, primarily money, but anything material. 
And the Sanskriti or the upbringing which I've had is do not run after Maya, right? And or do not do your main chief work through Maya. Having said that, we have known in the Western world that uh, these professional um, jobs that we have as a mediator, arbitrator, facilitator have become lucrative on top of. So, so it's a tension that all of us have. Should we charge money? How much money? Because what you have to see is when you are a good facilitator or a mediator, you're resolving someone tens of thousands, if not millions of dollars in damages and disputes. So why should you charge less because you are a peacemaker versus an attorney or a litigator who is fighting for one side? So, so there's, a, there's this cultural gap, I believe. Um, having said all the above, so I just want to us to have understanding of those needs of different societies and different times and different cultures. Having said all the above, I believe there are conflicts where money has zero role to play, which way we can all help when those conflicts need to be eradicated. And I believe there are conflicts where top dollars must be charged, especially when a lot of money is on the table and people could end up spending a lot of money to litigate the same case versus mediate or arbitrate the same case. So for me, it's a case-by-case -case analysis. You uh, come, as you mentioned, from uh, a different culture than many Americans. And I think it might be helpful just for the listener to understand a little bit more about how you, as uh, a, a, an Indian national, as well as a, a, a religious Sikh, uh, just think about peacemaking and, and conflict, because I, I gather that it would be different than many of the folks who do this work as a native-born uh, American. Thank you. I, 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 <laughs> we got to be careful. There's not, no superiority here just because I was born in a different culture, though I, I do will, I will call it privileged. Privileged because you have dual identities, if not multiple identities. Privileged because you have seen a worldview from multiple perspectives. Privileged because you have seen that human conditioning is so different around the world. So what you land up doing, I believe, because of that past is experiences, if you may, is you land up learning how to empathize with different situations, different people differently. And to have, a, if you may use the word, broader worldview, if you may, right? So growing up in India, of course, had a huge impact. I've spent uh, more than half of my life in India. Um, and I can tell you a couple of things, maybe three things about that upbringing that, that has played a big role on me. Number one, <clears throat> India, I believe, has taught me that time is something I cannot control. It is beyond my control. And I don't define time as this mechanical clock that we in the U.S. sometimes we see it through. When I mention time here, I believe time is our journey, our life, our destiny, our approach to life. So a lot of stress in the Western world that I see is primarily because we like to control things. We break our day into these mini meetings, multiple meetings, multitasking, always about to produce something, 10 takeaways, three takeaways, how to be happy, how to be. And the idea there is we want to get something so much out of our day, right? The 4 a.m. club, the 3 a.m. club. The, the, the beauty 
of having peace with time that I have learned. And I again, that's my interpretation of learnings from India, not that I know what India is about by any means. The beauty of that is that it causes calm in you, causes peace in you. And that peace and that calm, I believe, lingers in your heart, in your mind, especially when you're going through a difficult conflict resolution process, be it for somebody else, be it for self. But that calm and peace is practiced through years, not just over a day or two, when you see how elders talk to each other, society interacts with each other. I'll give you one example. Recently, in fact, about six weeks ago, maybe five, I was in India, and I saw a small accident on a roadside near Taj Mahal in Agra. And the driver of both of those uh, humble cars, if you may, got out, talked to each other, and they both said sorry. And they were on their way within 90 seconds, if not lesser than that. And I'm just comparing that to a Western approach where two cars touch each other, how often. And there are cases when we talk to each other, exchange our insurance, we're on our way. But there's also the anger, right? The the fight part, the, the ego part. So number one is one of that. that. That is a time, how we vision time, how we control or generate peace through it. I think the second thing I would say is this idea of power and what we deserve in life is, is very important because I believe every negotiation we do have have some power dynamic to it. And it's an understudied field as per my understanding within our dispute resolution field. Do you manage power? Do you interact with power? Are you supposed to resolve power? Are you supposed to transform people's power or are you supposed to just help them closing that what they call ABC, not always be closing. This idea of power, I believe, comes from a very unique perspective growing up in the Eastern world, where power is something that goes, connects with time very interestingly. They say first 20 years, you have zero power, less power. Next 20 years in your life, you gain a lot of power, you start gaining power. The third part of your life, let's say between 40 and 60 year old, you have achieved the highest power, but you start giving it away. And the last part of your life between 60 and 100 years, what you do is you you share your power to empower other people. So this idea of how power shifts over a lifespan is fascinating to me. Whereas here we see ourselves as one life, there you can see yourself living five different lives over a part of the part part of your um, part of your lifetime. I guess the only other thing I wanted to ask you specifically about your origins and your your current place is, you know, I know that you have done work in India. <clears throat> and you've obviously chosen to uh, headquarter your practice in the United States. What do you think would make it difficult or infeasible or impossible for you to apply your trade in India as compared to doing it in the United States? Well, what a good question. I think what is unique about India, it's connected to my previous thought of power. You cannot do only purely facilitative style of dispute resolution you need to change your styles based on society, on people. And I always say in India, you uh, see, borrowing from Sikh pra practices as well as my, my practicing faith, you need to be both a soldier and a saint. Saint, because that's where calmness of your mind is. That's where you intake. That's where you listen, you learn, you grow, you uh, generate peace within yourself and others. Soldier, so that you have courage. So you know when to stop someone. So you need you know when to 
tell someone enough or change your tone, sir. Or this is now how you're going to conduct business in my mediation or facilitation. And what's unique about uh, societies like India or China and, and collectivist societies, if you may, is you have to go back and forth between soldier and saint so quickly that's, that it is automatic, that sometimes from the Western mind, it, it may appear confusing or complex, which it is. But to an Eastern mind, it's an art that they live on a daily basis. So um, if that helps, that's that's one thing I'll share. Yeah. When you spoke at the Dispute Resolution Conference, you gave a talk around culture, memory, and dispute resolution. Mm-hmm. I can certainly appreciate where the culture part came from, but where did the memory part uh, originate for you? Very interesting. Yeah, the memory part came from my thinking that there is no culture without memory that we exist in our memories, right? Our idea of who we are. I mean, imagine a political fight in the US, right? The right and the left. What if there are no memories? Can there be a fight? So the idea of memory for me is, I think is understudied field, especially as we compare to mediation and dispute resolution. So I'm just fascinated by it. I've been researching it for close to four years, spoken about it quite a bit. But it's still a field that I would love to learn more about. And I've been reading and meeting with doctors and neuroscientists to just to understand. I was reading about this gentleman who who wanted to study memory and he landed up winning the uh, U.S. national memory competition. Um, so these techniques are out there. These are these uh, tricks, if you may, you can you can learn. But I'm, I'm, my interest is not there. That that's That's more of a scientific way of looking at memory. My interest is... How is memory connected to people's view of who they are and their rendezvous with conflict? Because what we do in conflict resolution is working at times with people's memories, their past. So before pushing them and thinking, let's move on, let's think about the future, let's see about resolution, which is of course needed an important trick and we must focus on it. We have to have this connection with where are you coming from? What happened? Or more importantly, what do you remember? So that's where I'm coming from in terms of in terms of my interest in memory. When you think about some of the more prominent models of mediation, in particular, you know, problem solving, narrative, transformative, you know, do you perceive memory to be getting a short shrift? Uh, for example, in a in a problem solving mediator's uh, toolbox, I certainly know it figures prominently into some of those other modes. I wonder if you think it's it's getting kicked to the curb metaphorically. Yes, I think you're right. Absolutely. I think I think what we having said that, I think within those styles of mediations that you mentioned, isn't it true that individuality, who we are as a mediator, plays a big role? I think some of us will spend more time understanding the past than somebody else who, who's imagining that they are practicing the same kind of mediation as we are defining it. But I think on a very true sense, each one of us, there are millions of kinds of mediations, if you may, because each one of us have our own version of what mediation is. And the beauty of it is that we can compensate, we can accommodate, we can challenge, change, review, and modify the process of mediation as we get along. And our, I believe our minds are sharp enough to figure that out. 
And including in that little dimension of mediation practice is this idea of how to work that I'm interested in is how to work specifically with people's memories of, of why are they not letting go of something or how do I walk with them a path in which their understanding of what happened or, or where the guilt or the, uh, or the revenge or justice comes from, uh, what if I can modify it a little bit by playing with what they think they remember what happened? When I think about this concept in relation to my teaching of, of students in the United States, I guess part of what comes up for me is <clears throat> the predilection of human beings, at least in some Western societies, to blame the other for all that has gone wrong and to take credit for all that has gone right. That feels to me like a very individualist construct. And I guess I wonder for you, as you've studied this, is there significant variation for someone, say, from a collectivist culture to yeah. remember things in a completely different way? Very good point. Absolutely, yes. Um, so let me, let's me let pause here for a second, and, and let me give a compliment to individualist mind, because many of us think individualist mind is the lost soul and <laughs> selfish and self-centered, and, and here is the benefit of individual mind. I believe that cultures that are very collectivist that are past-oriented, that love the memory part and honor history, age, right? And some of them, unfortunately, also very strongly patriarchic. In all those cultures, what you notice is people at the surface may claim to you that I'm going to change, but deep down, change is very hard for them. Individual cultures, even though we have this affiliation to me and blaming the other. As you said, I believe individual cultures are slightly more, if not a lot more open to being criticized, to be challenged. This whole idea of self-deprecating humor, for example, right, is very hard to find in many collectivist cultures where honor and saving face is huge or inner group identity. Whereas when you look at US, um, including myself and yourself and many other trainers and thinkers and mediators that I know are very open and easygoing in terms of putting self down. And I think there's a lot of prudence in there. There's a lot of depth in that one example because what essentially we are doing is, is we are telling ourselves through a sentence, including reminding, going back to memory, reminding ourselves that I do not know everything, that I may be wrong, that I need to humble myself. And the way I'm going to do it is laugh at myself, even though I may be an individualist. So just wanted to clarify that, that individualism has its own benefits to the extent. Now coming to memory part, I believe there's one place where memory is different in collectivist cultures with individualist cultures, and that is how people remember the whole process. So so let's, let me take an example. If you see how violence takes place in some collectivist cultures, it's not necessarily fighting for self. It is fighting for the group, right? My family, me, my dad. Take example from Korea, recently very powerful example of when Korean National Airlines uh, chairperson's daughter um, uh, made a plane go back because the peanuts were not served to her in a plate versus they were given to her in a packet. What's interesting, if you notice with me, is her father came out 
this is the Korean Airs chairperson, right? He came out and he apologized in public for his daughter's behavior. Right. So imagine that for a, for a second. That is collectivism, right? That is my relationship. I am responsible for um, what happened to my child, even though she's a grown-up executive in a company, I'm going to be apologizing on her behalf to you. So see how memory is working there, right? So you see yourself as product of a larger group of a society versus an individual project where I own everything, I am responsible, it's my house, my car, yeah, versus collectively, it belongs to all of us. So I think that's where the shift happens, is a person remembers from a collectivist perspective has more of a group-based memory versus a person from individualist perspective may have a more individualistic view and memory. And necessarily, not, neither one is good or bad. It's just different. I want to shift the geography a little bit because as yeah. I'm listening to our conversation, I can't help but think about what to me is a relatively remarkable reckoning across the United States around what we remember and more specifically what we memorialize. Surely you have observed how several communities, particularly in the Southern part of the United States, but I would argue across the country, have chosen to, uh, to remove memorials or to remove names uh, from places of, of remembrance. And there are those who view that as sacrilege um, and who view the memorialization even of a dark um, period or, or figure that has a darkened legacy as being mission critical. Um, I'm, I'm just fascinated to, to know what you make of all of that, given the lens that you've taken yeah. on this work. See, it's, it's, it's very close to, if I may use the word, idol worship, right? It is what idols do to us, right? So, so, so when you put up an idol, be it a idol of a goddess, be it idol of someone in the in the history, be it a famous president, what we are actually doing is making an interpretation or providing a meaning. So we're essentially going to how a human being or a society or a group of people provide meaning to something. So if this idol is representing what my people stood for, let's say, let's say from Sikhism perspective, Maharaja Ranjit Singh, a very smart and a very courageous warrior who stood for Sikhs. And, and, and now, now what I love to have is idol, right? Displayed in, in, in downtown LA, right? Now the issue is, will, will local um, LA population see that idol and say, wow, or will, or will it make me happy to see as an idol, as a Sikh man? So the, so what meaning it gives to me is very hard for a non-Sikh to empathize with that meaning because the idol is for me is, is my meaning given to an idol so first point that I'm, I'm trying to make here is it is these are difficult cases because who are the people for whom the idol was is the question and we are trying to balance that interest of a group of people with the interest of whether that person right in many cases these are male figure right again unfortunately whether that person, and this actually this case could be fortunate, did mess up in history, did some mistakes. Was that person racist, for example? Was that person um, uh, a killer? <laughs> Was that person, uh, did that person cause war unnecessarily? And that, now we're exploring, okay, he's, he or she is an idol to this group of people. 
But to a larger society, what kind of lesson are we presenting because of what he or she stood for that we are now uncovering or figuring out? So what we're doing is balancing of interests. And I believe in some circumstances, those idols should be taken down. In some circumstances, maybe the issue wasn't powerful enough that it should be taken down. So both, you cannot have a general standard or a rule here. You, know, you got to play it by the year. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll just give you a last example. I just came back from Mexico, where I was visiting for Judge Danny Weinstein's um, invitation. And in this small village within Mexico town um, that purposefully I want to keep uh, private, uh, there is a small uh, plank is being placed in the wall of a library, a learning center that the judge has kindly donated the entire uh, money for. And I can see reverence in people for that one simple plank. For you and me, it might mean a plank. For the local people, it means thousands of dollars, I don't know how many, that went into it, 20 years of struggle, the first memory of my child learning how to speak an English word. You can go on and on from there, right? So who am I to define what that plank means to the local villagers? It's an interesting question. With, a, with an eye towards the listener of this podcast as a potentially active practitioner like you and me in the dispute resolution space, what do you hope that they will consider in their day-to-day -day practice as it relates to these concepts of culture and memory? Very good, very good, very good. I, I would say, please understand that there is no way you can know someone's story in one sitting in two-hour caucus in two-day mediation so our job is very difficult. Our job is to understand where they're coming from, which is their history, their past, their memory, their relationship, their understanding of who they are and why they are sitting in front of you. It's a complex job because what you're trying to assess, your brain is trying to do is make sense of it. That relationship they have with conflict, with the past and with present and future. So you can help them, guide them, right? Towards the resolution. At the same time, they are deserving respect. They're deserving your presence. They're deserving your undivided attention. So my tips will be simple. And they will be, can you be with someone? Can you really be with someone? Can you give them the biggest gift that ever has been ever given, right? The gift of your undivided presence, of honoring what they're saying and building connection through that listening, through that compassion, through that open-minded uh, information exchange before you go into the process of problem solving. So I think that's what I will leave you with. I believe that's where the largest secret of our uh, profession is, as the best of us, if you may, have found a way to recognize that people are different, that they have different needs, they are difficult, they are complex, but they're worthy of our time. They're worthy of respect. They're worthy of attention. They're worthy of my intention. And that's where our field, uh, I think, grows and survives and, and in fact, uh, expands. Dr. Sukhsimran Singh, what a pleasure. Thanks for joining. 
My pleasure. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, like us on LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening.